and I'm ready to leather into him. And I thought, you, you're shouting at George Best. Yeah. What are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. Catch yourself on. <laughs> I'm Sean McDonald, and you're listening to Pleathered. My guest is TV broadcaster Eamon Holmes. Eamon has been on TV screens for over 40 years and holds the distinction of being the world's longest-serving breakfast television anchor in the world. We talk about growing up during the Troubles in Northern Ireland. Eamon tells me about his diverse and extensive career in media. And you'll hear about some big names who've become big pals, including the incomparable Sir Alex Ferguson, and the legendary Sir Roger Moore. This episode is brought to you by Debt Experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt senior debt advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt, offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. How much significance do you think a name has on a person's destiny? Yeah, well... Because do you know what I'm going to ask you? Yeah. Um, As regards my life... And the fact that uh, the TV program This Is Your Life was uh, presented by a man called Eamon Andrews. My mother tells me that she was stuck for a name with me. She was in her hospital bed and then a magazine with Eamon Andrews. He was on the front cover and uh, she felt that there were similarities, (laughs) that he had a mop of hair like like I was born with. And she said, he's my little Eamon. And uh, and I became Eamon uh, Holmes. Now, I think that that does have a a, a feature on on how you will end up, what your destiny will be. And from my point of view, um, I always thought I'd be destined to present the TV programme, This Is Your Life. Indeed, I should have presented it. But nobody wanted me. No one could see the connection. And and I knew I could do it. I've I've tried to uh, resurrect the programme again, but... There is, it does, isn't an appetite for it. It's too expensive uh, for what would be involved um, for TV companies today. And um, there doesn't seem to be any interest for it. But look, even Andrews was a multi-faceted, multi-talented TV presenter from Ireland. And uh, he did sport. He did children's programs. He did news. He did panel shows. He did, he did everything. And... I, I suppose as a result, when I got into television, I felt, well, you can do anything and everything. Mm-hmm. But people don't like that. Bosses don't like that. The public, I think, are totally fine with it. Yeah. But bosses love to put you in boxes. Yeah, they love to say, that. you know, I get some. look, are you news, are you sport, are you quiz show, what are you, entertainment, what are you? I'm all of the above, tick, tick, tick. Mm. Why can't you be? See what you're saying about this is your life um, and you wanting to have presented it. Do you remember... What would have been your first TV appearance at the YMCA? It was in Belfast when you were 12, and you ended up presenting that show. I think that's quite funny, that wee full circle moment. Yeah, that's very interesting as well. Um, 
I was I was twelve, thirteen, maybe I don't know. I was um, the troubles, you know, the troubles were f- happening big time, mm. and the last bus out of Belfast uh, would have been ten o'clock. All buses closed down at ten o'clock, and um, we recorded the program. And, um, and when when I look back at it, there's no existence of the recording anymore. But I remember being fascinated with the red lights on the cameras. The lights would go on, and I'd be following, looking at the red <laughs> lights. He's cutting to that one. He's cutting to that one, and then on the actual transmitter program, you see me. Everybody's singing, and they're looking at their hymn sheets, and I'm looking at the red line. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the night that you get you get chased and you had to run for about ten miles? Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about? After it, were you late getting? Because you mentioned the late bus. Yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure there was a story of you being chased by was it either skinheads or a tartan gang or something like that. Both, both, both. Oh, that's they a good were, laugh. Um, there was pretty scary times. I mean, I do remember as a um, you know as a family we were quite a working class family, but I went to a sort of middle class school, middle class grammar school, and um, everybody would call and pick up their children. They would pick up their children in their Renault 18s and whatever it was, and they would that was it and they were ferried home and it didn't matter if you even if you lived close to someone else you weren't offered a lift home and yet my father who had a carpet van he would have he would have picked anybody up and done anything whether anybody wanted to get into his van was another thing but being generous with giving people lifts was always a big thing with my dad and Mm. it passed on to my brothers as well as we grew up but um I just couldn't believe how other people would leave you to make your own way home. And, you know, you get on the bus and you look around in, the, in those days of the Troubles, and we're talking about the year would have been about 1972, 73. And um, you, you look and see, well, who's on the bus? Are you OK? You've got on the bus, right? Phew, pass that test. That's OK. Then where you get off the bus was all important as to who would be there. And the timing of the Songs of Praise recording and the youth club, the local Catholic youth club finishing uh, coincided. So say I was getting off my bus stop at around half nine, ten o'clock, then there would have been the opposite religion, the Tartan gangs, the, um, the, they were all dressed like the Bay City Rollers sort of were at the time, you know, all those... Um, what we call Skinner jeans with tartan down the side of them and uh, big Scottish influence on that. And and they're standing, waiting at the bus stop, whatever, with um, not just sticks and clubs, but with nails in them as well, you know? Just to, just to really make, just in case the, yeah, <laughs> the club doesn't yeah, do the yeah. trick. And I remember, I mean, I was always a very good runner at school. And you just had to be able to run. You had to be able to either run better than anyone else <coughs> or fight better than anyone else I mean I wasn't a fighter but I never lost a fight and the reason was you knew that if you were engaged in a fight you had to win it because mm. losing it was not, a, not an option it would, would have ended very badly well, you saying that about having to fight and having to run I was really interested in something you said about growing up during the troubles you said that the unnatural became natural definitely and, and what would have been this inconceivable sort of set of circumstances or environment for people not far over the water think how close we are Scotland and in the north of Ireland yeah very and, close very and just inconceivable mentally close physically close um, culturally close mm. um, the Scots Irish um, influence um, you know 
it's indistinguishable. You know, when I get off the ferry in Port Patrick or Stranraer or wherever it is, you immediately, you, do, you don't think you've left home at all. Yeah, I feel that when I'm in the north as well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and you know, culturally, the people, you know, I get on very, very well with Scottish people. They're very like Northern Irish people. And I love Glasgow as a city, just love mm. Glasgow. And uh, I get on very, very well there because uh, I understand. I understand the people. I understand. And the friendliness, there's a friendliness that doesn't exist in southern England. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I always notice it when I get the train back to Glasgow from London. And once you hit a bit Manchester, no. it starts to become palpable. Mm. Like it's almost tangible the feelings of friendliness and warmth and yeah. like camaraderie. Listen, I, I know I'm, I lived in Manchester for seven years. My son lives there now. I mean, I love it. I think good people in Manchester, friendly people. But literally on the way here to you, I said hello to a woman who was waiting on the lift beside me. And I swear to you, Sean. She jumped out of her skin. <laughs> she was holding a cup of coffee, and I said, hello. And she went, she looked at me, and I went, I said, it's a nice morning, isn't it? It's really nice. And she like, it was a simple question. Yeah. It's, an, it's either a nice morning, it's not a nice morning. And and she just was lost for words, and then she just got into the lift. I don't know how to react. He's, I, I'll, I look like a pure psycho as well. See, at times on the tube, I'll... I'm not trying to speak to somebody, oh, but no. see if something funny happens or you catch yes. somebody's eye. I'll always say, like, all right, or say a wee comment, and they'll just look at me as if, what is wrong with you? I and I'm looking you. at them like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I don't know you. We haven't met before. <laughs> we're not, we're, why would I talk to you? It is an interesting thing because, you know, Belfast, growing up in Belfast, living, I still have a house in Belfast, and, um, you know, people just talk to you for no reason. But my wife, who's English, she's... Um, She's a friendly woman, but she, she finds it strange. I mean, there's all sorts of things culturally that she finds strange that, you know, that um, people of my generation would go to funerals of people who we don't know. But I mightn't know them. I mightn't know the person who died because they're parents of someone who I do know. So, for instance, you know, say someone who worked for me or whatever and someone close to them died... I would go to the funeral out of respect to the person I knew as opposed to the yeah. person who was dead. I think that's completely normal. I think if I chalked it up, I've either been to as many or more funerals of people I'd never met, but you go as support for people that you, you know that you know and, and that you love. Circle. And it is, and I think death is an interesting thing that I think people need support um, you know, at certain times, and they need to know. There's no point saying, I'm a friend of Sean's if I wasn't there for when times were low, yeah, exactly for you as well, you know, and um, fair weather it's friend. Just maybe a community thing. I don't know, but it is something that that dies out. People are very in life, very self-centered. I I hurt easily because I'm a giver. I give to people, and I I sort of I suppose expect some sort of respect in 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 return, and you often get contempt because whether it's financial help or uh, advice in some other direction or whatever. I think sometimes people have a contempt for you for being in a position where they need help mm. and they resent being helped in a way. Yeah, I feel like the the best way to circumvent that type of thing is just the three words. But well, I, I try and remind myself in saying that as if I'm perfect, I'm not, and I'm probably the example of this to other people at times. But I always think, well, they're not you. And yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. people can be like a cloud, kind of like that, kind of block yeah. your own sunshine. Well, I, I probably forget that they're not mm. you. I, I, I forget that. And 
Um, I'm, a, I'm a giving person, I'm a helpful person, I'm very respectful of a hierarchy. So someone who's older than me, I would give them respect, say even professionally, mm -hmm. not just personally, but especially professionally, people that I've grown up watching on telly and things, and then I would be end up working with them. And uh, it wouldn't matter if I had top billing or not, I'd be saying, after you, after you know you do that, or you, I would show them that respect. I don't find that exists in a very cutthroat jo world of yeah. um, uh, broadcast now. Do you think some people view being respectful as being deferential? Because there there's a big difference. Mm -hmm. They might think, if I show this person too much respect, then that's me saying, oh, well, I, I view myself as beneath you. But I think they're two very different well, things. Well, the way I would see it, it's like an honour. I mean, you and I, we're both into our sport. And you know what it's like when you meet somebody who you used to spectate, used to watch? and then to meet them. And you suddenly have that, whether it's a footballer, whether it's a golfer, whatever. If that's being deferential or that's just being respectful, uh, I, I don't know, but to me it's like, wow, yeah. you know, you, you've earned the right to sit there to do this, to whatever. Definitely. I haven't, and um, you know, as all as I, I think I have a confidence in myself that I don't sit and need other people's approval over certain things, and therefore I'm easy, I'm, I can, I can take second position in certain things, but not every well, hardly anybody mm. can take second position. Well, I things. think if someone has a comfort with taking that second position, they have a comfort within themselves. It's kind of a bit like what are you, what yeah. are you trying to prove. I actually remember the day I sent you the video of Celtic getting the league trophy. Yes, yes. I met right. Jackie McNamara that day. Very Celtic yes. fullback. Right. Oh, oh my God, my favourite. I would yeah. put him up there with Henrik Larsson, actually. <coughs> yeah, you see, I, I totally get that. Yeah. And if you don't have heroes in life, I think heroes are very, very important, yeah. then you don't have much of a life. You don't have anything to aspire to, anything to dream, anything to escape from. And, and I think having heroes is a, a wonderful thing. And heroes don't just have to be famous. I mean, heroes, you can be related to heroes. Heroes can be can run the corner shop or, you know, heroes yeah. can drive the bus. Or well, re regular whatever. listeners of this podcast will know my grandpa's my hero. He's my, he's a, he's the top of the pile for me. Yeah, well, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's, mm. that's really nice. That's really yeah. nice to hear. You, you mentioned um, aspirations and escapism there. Now, if you can allow me to take you back to about would this be about 1969 so this is before you moved from the new lodge to was it Cliftonville yeah, Road 68 yeah 60, the uh, United won the European Cup yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but that's not what I remember football my first football memory was not England winning the World Cup or United winning the European so, yeah. Cup it was Celtic yes I knew you were going to winning, say that winning the European Cup and, you know, and, and what an achievement know. you know for a team that was all within 40 miles of Glasgow or whatever. Can I point out as well, everyone always says within 40 miles of Glasgow, but if mm. Bobby Lennox wasn't selfish enough to be born in Saltcoats, <laughs> then it would have been about 10, 15 miles away because your furthest was like, say, Billy, uh, Billy McNeil in Bells Hill, you've got Jimmy Johnson in View Park and uh -huh. so on. Um, so yeah, Billy, uh, Bobby Lennox has got a lot to answer for there. He's, yeah. he's ruined it. One of, the, uh, one of the most amazing things was I walked into a hotel in Glasgow one night and this man stopped me outside and he started talking to me and he said, it's great to meet you and whatever, whatever. And he had an air about him that, um, that you know, he was somebody, but I didn't know who he was. He was a little old man and I didn't know who he was. And, I'm, and I said to him, I says, look, I'm really sorry. I said, but, you know, I know you from somewhere, but who are you? And he said, Birdie old. I knew you were going to say Birdie. Did you? Yeah, I just knew. Just when you said a wee guy. And plus, he's the type of wee guy that would... Um, 
it would go up to people. I told a, f- a story about Bertie Old recently. I was thrilled to meet Bertie Old. Oh, what a, a character. Land. I mean, I that's know. somebody who's part of history. So Bertie Old, the story I told recently about him was he's playing a game for Celtic and Tiny Wharton was the referee. And uh, he says the referee's just giving things against us all day and he's getting so annoyed with him. And he goes up to him and he says, uh, Mr Wharton, if I called you a bastard, would you send me off? Yeah. And Wharton says, yes, I would send you off. It's foul and abusive language. And Bertie says, well, what if I think you're a bastard? And he said, well, I couldn't send you off because you only think it. He says, well, I think you're a bastard. <laughs> Very clever. Yeah, Very clever. Just a great a great um, guy. He was a, such, a, such a sad loss. To, God, ro- God rest his yeah. soul. Um, you know, but listen, that's what I mean about having heroes. And that's why television is is relatively easy for me because it's something that I love, something that I study, something that I have a connection with. And what I realize about a lot of people who work in television or radio is that they don't have a love. They could be selling baked beans. Yeah, That's why I can't stand business people, chief executives who one minute are involved in the tire industry and then they're involved in travel and then they're involved in something else. And I think, don't then come into TV and try and run TV and tell me the way TV should be. Yeah. Because I have a connection and affection and I know, oh my gosh, I was so blessed to basically grow up in the 60s and 70s when I think TV was at its height and it was just unbelievable. I mean, I, I programs from my childhood and that was because there weren't, people say, We've got great choice with television television channels now, but we don't, you know, less is more. Yeah. When I was a kid, and the most influential programs of me, uh, the Irwin Allen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Lost in Space, um, you know, then Jerry Anderson, Captain Scarlet, Thunderbirds, Joe Ninety, um, oh my goodness, The Avengers, um, Danger Man. There were so, and then the West champions, the champion, the Wonder Horse. I could go on forever. And then the educational programs, the Zoo Times, the Blue Peters. I could go on and on and on. Television was one big educational escapism for mm. me, because not only did I learn about Captain Cook and um, Scott of the Antarctic and whatever, I also escaped. What would the Antarctic be like? I want to go and see an iceberg one day. So I did go mm. and see an iceberg one day. You know, you, you want cowboy land, watching westerns and things, and then going to the American West and and seeing and living these things. TV was a, an incredible escape for me, incredible escape. But from, from the troubles, of course, bear yeah, in mind the say. troubles were, were pretty bad, and I wouldn't have had a normal childhood from the point of view that I could go to youth clubs or I could, uh, you know, it's not wasn't like the American movies that you'd learn to drive and you would, you know, take a girl out on a date and go to a burger joint and whatever it is. <laughs> Believe me, Belfast was a war zone. Yeah. It closed down at night. There were no street lights. There were soldiers parading the streets with guns and looking through sights. And um, it, it had to have an impression on you. But what I did was just go in, close the door and watch television. Yeah. The television was a... A beautiful world. The um, your brother Leonard, he used to you know he used to hang out the window making tape recordings of the yeah, firefights as well. That when I when he I did heard, he yeah, did yeah when yeah. I when I heard you saying that and I heard you saying as well that you could distinguish if it was the IRA 
or the UDA or the or, army or, or, or yeah because I mean the army would fire high velocity um, <coughs> bullets from rifles mm -hmm. so that had a different sound than a low velocity bullet from a handgun for instance yeah um, and um, you know a professional uh, missile sounds different than a petrol bomb and uh, whatever and you know you know how to make all these things you know what they're about and um, you know behind us there was a petrol station two streets away and it was um, it was bombed and ter terrible things happened there the owner was shot dead one time and uh, then it was bombed and uh, it was awful and we um, me and my brother Brian we must have been I don't know 10 or so and we went round and everybody was looting it looting the petrol station and in those days it wasn't like petrol stations today where they sold bread and buns and sweets and all sorts of things like that they sold fan belts and spark plugs and things <laughs> so we would we would go around and the best thing you could ever get out of a petrol station in the 70s were uh, things like um, uh, World Cup coins and uh, SO had things like called a squelcher book they were all souvenir things so the more petrol you bought the more gifts mm. you got Unfortunately, that was okay at Shell and BP and SO, but um, this was what was called a FINA petrol station, F-I-N-A, which I think was Italian, but um, anyway, they didn't sell anything. But anyway, Brian and I went in with everybody else and we got boxes of spark plugs <laughs> and belts. What age were you? Ten, ten, but you know, we, we, but you know everybody was doing it. Yeah. So I went, we went around the house and we were thinking, wow, look at all this, look at all this, and it all stank of smoke. Stank of smoke, yeah. you know. It was, uh, you know, when someone was burnt down, you never realize everything emerges with a stench. And um, the next minute, whack around the back of the head, whack me and Brad, whack around the back of the head by dad, dad. What are you doing, dad? Dad, they burnt down or they bombed the pe the Fina petrol station, and we just went in and we got these things. And then over this, you take that, you put that back in your box. And you walk back around and put that back where you find it. I'm not having thieves in this house. And that's what we had to do. Yeah. We literally had to walk back and place back where we where we had. Because I was, I was going to say, there's, you probably at that point as well, you've, you, you arrive at a fork in the road. And the likelihood is, for a lot of young men and women, you could have gone down the Republican oh, yeah. route. You could yeah. have kind of went towards the IRA. Now, yeah. I found it very... That might sound a wee bit jarring to anybody who is out with the either West of Scotland bubble or the North of Ireland bubble, where they think, what, you could have joined the IRA? It, that was a very feasible uh, opportunity, you, wasn't it? you lived in a, a certain community, just streets of people of your own religion, mm. nobody else, and people who felt oppressed and people, people who felt under threat that their, their areas were not being protected and whatever. The only protectors that came forward that they trusted was either the, the Republican uh, uh, paramilitaries mm. or the Unionist uh, paramilitaries. And um, so, so basically that was it and uh, there would have been pressure brought to bear. It would have been seemed quite odd that you were, you know, a teenage male and not yeah. being involved in the cause in some way or other, like, you know, transporting stuff or, you know, building barricades or whatever, whatever it happened to be. But lucky enough, my, my mother and father were never political they were never we never really discussed politics my father was quite um my father just used to say about politicians none of them are for the working man hmm. and um you know and from that point of view by the sweat of his brow you know i had to respect what he did and, and realized through life you know i'm very pro-union a lot of people wouldn't be pro-union unions don't exist nowadays but the abuses in workplaces of of how people are are treated by 
a lot of big companies is uh, is, is scandalous, really. Yeah. And um, you know, as a, you know, in this country, uh, newspapers are against unions. Media television outlets and radio outlets are all against unions. They don't, and they don't even ask themselves why. They just unions are bad. Pack aside, and that's it. And and that's it. And it's quite strange. It's not that I'm for everything that unions do, but I respect unions, and I think that you know they have a case, and they have a cause, and they have a voice, and they have a reason, and they represent the oppressed and they represent the weak. I think that's a theme in my life that I do like representing people who don't have a voice, who aren't. Um, represented and have nobody to speak for them. I think I've always had that bit of a superhero thing within me, which has always got me in trouble. Uh, which is, uh, pardon me, what did you just say to him? Oh, sorry, sorry. If you're going to pick a fight, pick a fight with me. That's my sort of attitude. Yeah. And then you know you can be seen, you know, as 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 wrong. But I only stand up against bad people. I think they're quite a lot of bad people. Well, that that explains why on the breakfast show then when I start going mental a bit centrica. Mm. And the British gas, taking bonuses or mm. ripping consumers off, you always cut chime right in and back me up, which mm. I, I always think, well, that's that's kind of the right thing to do, but it kind of gives a bit more. Because you know what it's like when you're discussing things, people come back at you and say, no, mm -hmm. well, I disagree. Mm -hmm. And people always comment and say, I noticed Damon completely backed you up on that. And I'm like, yeah, he did. So there mm -hmm. you go, mm -hmm. the superhero. Well, it's just a natural instinct um, about it but as I say it doesn't always um, people you see there's a lot of things in life that people can't handle and one of the things they can't handle is the truth mm. and uh, they can't because it's, it's now about their version of the truth people want independent news but only if it represents what they feel <laughs> and what they think otherwise if they, they, they don't want you know so so they, they love Boris Johnson, therefore they can't have anything said about Boris Johnson. They love Donald Trump, therefore they can't have anything said yeah. about him. So they can't see flaws in certain people, and you can't, as a journalist, just ask a straight question. Should Boris Johnson resign? <gasps> Eamon Holmes is Boris bashing. Well, no, he's not. He's just asking, should he resign? And, the, and this all came about by social media. Social media has changed the landscape so much of how we're all influenced and you've got to ask yourself the question. Social media gives everybody a voice. Hmm. Does everybody deserve a voice? That's the debate. Yeah. They, you know, are they worth listening to? Cancel culture, dear God. The power that, that cancel culture has. I know. Just, you know, just, 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 just ridiculous. Where are we going in this world? Where are we going? Um, we'll go back, let's go to a time when, when that didn't exist, when you were kind of, they've hmm. still, fl well, not fledgling start of your career, but, will bypass you've spoken about it so much we know you were a farming correspondent for Ulster TV ended mm. up doing sports correspondence but let's go to the point when you go over to Manchester now before GMTV there was open air mm. what's your memories of working in that show well it was like uh, you know playing for a local Irish league team and then Man United coming in for you and saying you know do you want to play for us my mother, just before she died, she phoned me up one day. My mother never phoned, never phoned. She never, she never uses the phone. Doesn't like technology and whatever. So my phone's ringing. I'm thinking, gosh, what's she phoning for? I said, Mum, Mum, are you okay? You okay? Is everything okay? Yeah, son, I couldn't sleep very well last night. Why, Mum? What's wrong with you? I just want to know why. Why? Why what, Mum? What? What? I just want to know why did you go to England? 
<laughs> Do you know what that <laughs> immediately puts me in mind of? George Best when he's got 50 grand in cash and Miss World in the bed and the guy's cracking the champagne and he says, George, where did it all go wrong? Uh, Mum, is it not a wee bit self-explanatory here? Well, you know, I mean, 40-odd years had passed and I go, what are you talking about, Mum? She said, you're the only one of my sons that's ever thought thought of leaving, that's ever left. Now, all my brothers lived within a mile and a half, two miles of my mother's house, right? Yeah. So... So that is like where whole life revolves around there. I couldn't think what it would be like to j- just be that triangle, just do that all the time. Yeah. Mum's house, my house, to the shops, mum's house, my house. Do, do, do. But, you know, that tends to be the way the way it is. And she she just could not understand. She said, why didn't you just stay here and, and get a job? So she didn't understand the aspiration. Hmm. She didn't understand the, the business of, you know, there was just wasn't the work at the level that I wanted to do. Or that, you know, being on, being on TV and being, uh, you know, in the public eye is a very, very divisive thing. You think people are happy for you, but they're only happy to a certain degree. It's a begrudging thing. Mm. They're happy as long as you're not more successful than they are. And and getting attention, so few people understand what it's like getting attention and dealing with attention. And what brings me out in a rash practically is people who act differently, who have been somebody, and then they change because they're famous or, or they're what they deem as famous. Yeah, you know? well that, that brings me on to a, a point I was going to bring up later, and we'll circle back because I obviously want to talk about GMTV, but do you know what Ryland said about you? What? So he said, Ruth and Eamon are the two nicest people in the industry that you could wish, ever wish to meet. They've got time for everybody, they don't care about status or who's in the pecking order. They're the funniest and kindest people. But I have to also say, he says, you're a fucking nightmare trying to go anywhere because you have a genuine in-depth conversation with every single person that you pass, swings and roundabouts. But that's that's quite a good um, character reference in, well, you in know, terms of not changing. He's, he's also, he's a good lad. He's a good lad that people, really good lad, that people think um, he, he's flamboyant and he's um, he would have every reason to have a an ego and uh, whatever, but he he's a, he's a working class lad that realizes he's very lucky to be doing what he what he does, and yeah. he he hasn't uh, changed. He had a talent, and he's made the most of it. And he's a uh, Ryland is what you would call a personality. You know, he he is. You know, he's not particularly famous for one thing, not his singing, not his presentation, whatever, but just for being a personality. Yeah, that is Ryland. That. Yeah. And he's a natural broadcaster, he's natural, and he's interested in people around him. And um, you see, as I said, my dad was a carpet fitter and um, his attitude to life was, and again, it's very hard to share this with other people because other people don't do it, but my dad would bring us to work. So from eight and nine and 10 years of age, we were in the back of the carpet van um, Dad would say, well, carry those gripper rods in, bring me that roll that felt out, whatever. Just keeping us away from Mum. Mum, yeah. Mum, you know, Mum had work to do in the house and things, and having five boys around wouldn't have been too helpful to it. So we were brought out and made into Dad's little helpers, and I was an absolute disgrace as a carpet fitter. I wasn't very, wasn't good at it at all. All my brothers, two of them have chosen to do it, and uh, the other two uh, could do it if they wanted to, but, di- but didn't. But I, I couldn't do it. I was awful, awful on it. And I think that led to me, my dad was really, really good. He was a perfectionist at what he did. He was a craftsman. And um, 
and it always led me to want to be good at something. And when I found out I was good at broadcasting, then that was my thing, and I was gonna, uh, that was gonna be my carpet fitting moment. That's what I wanted to do to the best mm. of my ability, you know. Mm. Hilton Glasgow have refurbished their fitness suite and spa, and the place is absolutely incredible. Right in the heart of Glasgow, the gym, pool, sauna, and steam room are there for you to enjoy. With an executive membership, you'll also receive a free personalised fitness plan, free parking, complimentary guest passes, all while enjoying exclusive lounge access in the hotel, complimentary refreshments, and loads more. So if you're somebody who wants a brilliant place to train, relax and unwind, all within the comfort of a hotel like Hilton Glasgow, then visit hghealthandfitness.com to get your executive membership today. The link to the website is also available in the episode notes. With um, when GMTV came around, 1st of January 1993, did you think you would be there as long as you were? 12 years, 12 and a half years? Um, well, I suppose that's yes and no, yes, uh, from the point that that's the job that you do. I started out in tea time news five days a week and I ended up in breakfast news five days a week. So um, I know which ones I would prefer. <laughs> <laughs> tea time is a very good slot. Um, I think we should have a PM TV. I think we should have a version yeah. of uh, breakfast television in the evening or two hour sort of news and current affairs program. But the sad thing is, Sean, that so many people, so many people today want opinions. They have opinions and they're very forceful about them, but they're not interested in news and current affairs as such. They're not interested in a balance and they're not interested in, um, like I say to a lot of younger people, people of your age, whatever, what do you watch or where do you consume your news from? And they're not watching Newsnight and Channel 4 News and uh, the 9 o'clock news. And the, well, it's not the 9 o'clock news anymore. It's the 10 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news. They don't, they don't watch bulletins. Mm. They, they, they just things from their phones and, yeah. and, and Daily Mail online and wh whatever it happens to be. And you just have to accept that's the way it is. It's not that that's right or wrong, but the landscape is very, very different. But I had this overwhelming appetite for consuming news, you know, and um, it's not that news, I mean, believe me, I'm, I'm as happy doing a quiz show as I am doing um, a news program or, uh, or, or documentaries. I, outside filming is a beautiful thing, but it is, it's hard. Studio's relatively easy, mm. you know, to be, to be outside, get to point A to point B to have your clothes right and, and sequence and you know uh, there's so much there's so much complication that I this is where my wife says to me Eamon you're boring people now because I get very technical about what I do and a very great belief in what I do and I have a clear vision of what I do very clear vision of what I do and it's very easy TV is the easiest thing I will ever do in life made complicated by a lot of people who really don't know how to do it and there's a you know people stick to rules I hate sticking to rules I just you know push the boundaries, do it differently, you know, be different than everybody else. And, um, but there's a lot of, a lot of convention with it, but it's, um, as, as, as we have a saying in the business, it's only TV really, nobody died. Mm. Sometimes they do die, of course. Spe that's the thing. Speaking about people dying or appearing to be dead, David Blaine, 
Remember yeah. when you interviewed him in the GMTV couch? Yeah. What did you? So for anybody that's unaware, that's listening, David Blaine came on. You interviewed him. He's a magician or an illusionist. Illusionist. Yeah. And you're asking him questions, and he's just eyeball, just staring at you, but not not well, answering. You see, the 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 thing about that was. Um, I didn't know David Blaine. I, I, you know, most people in, who are on TV and yeah. they're famous and whatever it is. But I didn't know of him. I didn't know what he did. And he It was his early time, wasn't it? He yeah. just sort of came out. And so then when he, when, when, he um, when I started talking to him and he wasn't answering um, and you're on a live show, I didn't know, was this part of the act or is this the man who he is or is he upset with me or what's wrong with him? <laughs> and I was just about to tell him to sling his hook because I didn't have that much respect for him. Yeah. And I thought, Maybe this man has got a medical condition. You know, maybe his <laughs> blood levels or sugar levels have dropped or something. Maybe black cocoa pops. Yeah, and then I'm going to be, you know, he's going to be diabetic or something, and I'll have <laughs> told him, that's enough, out you go, whatever. So I, I, out of respect, kept on talking to him, and I, and I did all the talking, and it's like everything else. If you could do it again, you'd do it differently. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, if, if for anybody, go on YouTube it. Eamon Holmes, David Blaine, just what? Because it is funny because you you can hear <laughs> your discomfort as well. You can um, hear me breathe. Uh, right, yeah. uh, right. Mm, that mm. do you know? GMTV people will say this to you ten times a day, every day. But we all uh, people anyway of my generation, we grew up watching GMTV. You you open your eyes, and the first thing you do is you put on the TV in your room. Yes. That's what I did, and it was GMTV. Um, and you see, and and you're right there, Sean, from the point of view that things have changed yeah. people don't wake up and automatically think there's there's telly on uh, at, at on 6 the o'clock in the morning 7 o'clock it, it has changed so much but in those days there was no competition yeah. and, and and before you know TV AM was slightly before us before sort of 1983 or whatever there was nothing on in the mornings there was mm. nothing so so it's actually then have something to watch and it was brilliant because yeah. like and because it was the only thing if you're an a-list name in entertainment or politics you're on gmtv if yeah. you've got something to promote um monica Lewinsky, you had her yeah. on the couch yes. Catherine zeta jones kissed you right in the lips i'm yes, sure yes yes um i remember waking up in march 2003 and that was the first time i saw the news of the first aerial bombardment of the iraq war in baghdad with the coalition forces and you're like yes. whether it's Britney Spears or Rihanna or who I'm pretty yeah, the run in with Rihanna's was it Rihanna's manager hit you in the arm and said yeah. you want to speak to her but who said you want to speak to Miss Rihanna you speak through me <laughs> I can't really tell you the conversation that then after that, that but, with schmuck but off. I thought I thought to myself you just picked the wrong man here yeah so so that was interesting. Monica Lewinsky um uh, Bill Clinton's uh, in, intern and um and lover and, and believe me, I fancy Bill Clinton myself. He is a <laughs> charismatic man, yeah, so charismatic felt. man. Um, and uh, basically, I was talking about it, and I said, well, what the president will want to do, this was her first live TV interview in Britain, and um, she, and she said, oh, you know the president, do you? Like, in this very snarky way, you know, mm. what would you know type thing. I said, well, actually, I have met him, I said, but unlike you, I only shook his hand. <laughs> you know, what did she say? She buckled over laughing. <laughs> I think she was very charismatic. She was very good. She she took it well, and um, yeah. So I was very impressed with her. Yeah, nice. The I mean the extent of the viewership as well. I'm pretty sure when you left, they did like a compilation of people wishing you well, and you had Elton John. I think he's on a red carpet, and he's told he's like Eamon's leaving, and it was like a very. Oh no! Like what am I going to watch? And even mm -hmm. Tony Blair, 
And Tony Blair, I think, congratulated you or commended you on your robust but fair interviewing style. And I mean, to then look at that variation of that type of celebrity demographic is is insane to have the Prime Minister and one of the all-time greats of music both saying, oh, no, that's a shame. Gutted he's away. That's the great privilege of doing what you do and, you know, wanting to do it well. Um, If there's a downside to it, if I was an author and I was writing books and whatever, people somehow see that as better. He's got a book with his name on it, you know. But you you can do live TV five days a week, three hours a day, and it's instant, it's here, and then Mm. it's forgotten. It's gone, it's gone. Um, and, and, and as for me, the older I get, the less of it I can remember. It's very good you reminded me of things here. But yeah. um, I uh, yes, I've, I've met an awful lot of people, uh, which has been a tremendous privilege. I'm sorry I've never wrote down who I did meet. And in, in those days when I started in the 80s, um, you didn't take a camera along with you or, you know, everybody has a camera today because it's their telephone. Yeah. But um, there's people who... Uh, you know, you resent not getting pictures with, and uh, and 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 having having the memories. You know, to think of if I was reminded about things. Gosh, I did that. I'll have forgotten more than I'll ever remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if if it was up to me, if I was able to force you into a room, I would love to read a book or a sort of memoir of you just writing about your your encounters and experiences with people. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. imagine that to read a bit from Monica Lewinsky to. Sir Roger Moore, somebody that became oh, a good friend of well, yours. Oh, he's a lovely, lovely man. Lovely, lovely man. Um, he was my bond. You know, mm. it was my my era. And I can remember having a poster of him as James Bond on my bedroom wall. Um, you know, a few other things as well, but I mean, he <laughs> was he was there. And um, and to actually then not only meet him, and, and it wasn't me pursuing him, he, he became friendly with me. Mm. And uh, to, to the extent that um, sadly, and and I suppose um, very privileged to, I was one of like about a hundred people invited to his memorial service. Pinewood Studios, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, and uh, I think it was the Bond set. It's called the Bond. It was a Bond set. Yeah. But this this uh, theatre hall that we were in, and um, and then there was, see, I I do love movies and. There was there's a, a movie that no one will know what it was called, but it was tremendous. I thought it was tremendous, and it was called Escape to Athena, and Roger Moore plays a Nazi uh, officer stationed in, in Rhodes or somewhere Greek island, and uh, this is during the Second World War, and then the leader of the Greek resistance is Telesalvalis, um, Telesalvalis, Kojak, mm. and. Uh, uh, then there is um, uh, oh gosh, what's her name? What's her name? Got blank now. Um, the female, the female lead in it. Um, big name. Mm-hmm. A big name. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, heart to heart. Uh, Stephanie Powers. Right. Stephanie Powers. And anyway, I walked across that day. It was a beautiful autumn afternoon, and it was uh, the sun was shining, and I uh, suddenly saw Stephanie Powers on the lawn and I thought this is once in a lifetime to be able to meet Stephanie Powers because she also starred with John Wayne who's another big hero yeah. of mine in a film called McClintock and um, I walked across and I held my hand out and she said why Eamon how lovely to meet you and I looked over my shoulder and I said 
you know who I am? I said, yeah, I spend a quarter of the year living in Oxford. <laughs> and, um, oh dear. and uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing once. I mean, I remember being asked to do um, the funeral, uh, not the funeral, sorry, the wedding of uh, William and Kate for, right. for Sky News, covering for Sky News. And, um, and the producer said to me, when they met with the palace and Prince William was there and they were talking about who was going to be involved in the coverage, he said, uh, and they said, and we were thinking of Eamon Holmes to host this and do this. And he said, oh, good. He said, uh, Grandma will, will be very happy. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And I thought, geez, the Queen watches me on TV. Yeah, that's nice. Um, so that was that was great. When I did met the, meet the Queen and I got a, an OBE and she said, you might, you're told you'll have a minute and a half or so with her. And um, I walked up and uh, she goes, you must have interviewed a lot of people. And I said, well, I have, Mom. I said, actually, I've interviewed everyone in your family with one exception. And she said, really, who? And I said, you, Mom, you. I said, but we could fix that. We're near the end of the queue now. I said, I could just set up over there um, with that <laughs> camera there, and you and I could do a wee chat at the end of the stage here, and, uh, and that would be it sorted. That would be my full house. And she went, <laughs> and she was holding it under my hand she just pushed it back so I got about 20 seconds talking Aye. to her as a result I <laughs> think she was thinking this is mad Irishman here but she's two uh, seconds away for saying right off you fuck now <laughs> <laughs> um, you know I did say I did say to my mum when I got the letter from the Prime Minister who was uh, Theresa May at the time my mum said to me and uh she said to me, I was I was heading back to I was in Belfast and I was heading back to uh, London and uh she said just her and me and she said, Well is there any, any news, anything to tell me? Anything any news? And I said, um, well mummy, I got a letter from the Prime Minister today. What did she want? <laughs> and I said, She was asking me would I accept an OBE and my mum just went quiet, absolutely quiet. Like this confused her. You know, you get an honour mum from the Queen. You go, Queen, you go to Buckingham Palace and you get this honour. Silence. Never mind that. Do you have any, anything I'd be interested in? <laughs> and I just I thought, you see, this is why your own standards and pleasing yourself and meeting yeah. your own heroes, mm. you know, but be they from kids' TV programmes or Top of the Pops or whatever the heck <coughs> it happens to be, um, you can't then impose that on someone else. If someone yeah. else isn't into it, they're not into it. So I thought it was the greatest thing on earth to be invited to Buckingham Palace, meet the Queen, get an honour. But my mother just didn't. Not fast. Not fast. <coughs> That'll keep your feet in the ground. Mm. Um, I want to take you back. You know, you said that I've kind of reminded you of a couple of things. Mm. So I'm going to set the scene for you, right? Mm. And let's see how quickly you remember. So it's 1998. You're standing in a full kit. You've got Holmes 7 on the back. Man United striker Andy Cole's in front of you. The Newcastle United team mm -hmm. is to your right. Yes, yes. Where does that take you back to? Um, we were filming a behind-the-scenes documentary at Man United, and I got to walk out with the team. So, so they would have had, uh, you know, the eleven players. Yeah. But I would have been the, the I would have been the twelfth player. But it doesn't look like that. It looks like you're actually part of the real team. You're, you're like you're walking out to the pitch, and I'm like, he's walking out in the park. Yeah. Yes, like, yeah. well, like, that was an, that was an actual match I, day, I, and I, I had to get special permission for that. And I've I've never seen in terms of. I can only describe the level of access you had in that documentary, mm. which for me was pure nostalgia because we've spoken about this. I'm a 
a genuine, maybe not so much now because of the way things have gone, but was a genuine Man United fanatic, obviously after Celtic. But I've never seen a level of access like that for, for no. anything. Well, you see, that depends on the manager. And I had a very good relationship with the manager. And, um, you know, when I moved to uh, Manchester the same uh, year as he did, 1986, and he came down in October that year, and I had I'd arrived in... September or so, mm. and then I would cover. I had a sports program uh, on BBC Two, and uh, uh, to cover cover the Northwest, and uh, and I presented that with Dennis Law, which was an amazing. What a thing. thrill that must have been! Yeah, and then you know it would come at the end, and they would say, um, "Right, Dennis." The the the, the producer would say, "Would get you a taxi?" And I and I'd say. Sure, I'd leave you home, Dennis. I live near you. Do you really? I didn't live anywhere near him <laughs> at all. But I would drive him home on wow. a Friday night. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, it was called Sports Round Northwest. And um, uh, so that was just like an incredible thing. You had to pinch yourself and say, they're paying me for this, you know. They're paying me to work with Dennis Law. But anyway, Alex Ferguson, um, Alex Ferguson called me over the training ground one day and he said, oh, you, 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 whatever. And I came over and he said, young Holmes, he said, uh, I want a word with you. And I'm thinking, oh, God. He said, uh, he said, you know, that BBC that you work for, you're the only one that's not a fully paid-up member of the Liverpool Supporters Club. And he went through everybody from top to bottom, from, you know, the head of the department through to researchers on the programme. And he wasn't far wrong. Mm. They were all Liverpool supporters, right? He, he didn't, didn't use homework. He knew everything. And uh, he said, but anyway, you keep preaching the red gospel. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so that was me and him in there, in together. And uh, he was very good. He was very good about giving me access and doing things and seeing things. So that was the result. I mean, you you know, you, you had his blessing or you hadn't. Yeah, <laughs> mm, I, uh, I did. Um, I don't know if you're aware of who Dick Campbell is. He's a sort of cult figure in Scottish football, mm. one of the longest serving managers, but he was a oh, you see a contemporary he was a, like a teammate of Walter Smith at Dundee yes. United and yes. contemporary of Sir Alex. He I was met in Walter Smith one night in Portugal. Lovely, lovely yeah, I had a meal with me. Nice he, he called me or him and his wife and he called me and my friend over and he said, uh, you have a meal with us, whatever and we sat down at his table, we came into the same restaurant. And um what a gent! What a what an yeah. absolute! Was he was a, a lovely man, lovely yeah, man. Yeah, he was. We we saw Alex. So I I put on a live show with Dick Campbell because he almost took, I think, part time breaking into the Scottish Premiership. Yes, they yes. fell at the last hurdle, but I asked Sir Alex to record a message uh -huh. to play during the show, and he did it absolutely mm. brilliant. Um, and I thought hey, that's that's the mark of the guy. Fergie's very loyal to people he grew up with. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been to family events that I think, well, why why am I here? People he went to primary school with, secondary school with, uh, people he worked with, you know. he's He seems to be very connected to his roots, to his past, yeah, and, yes. and uh, yeah, to all that, yeah. Wait, would would your love affair with Man United, would, or Manchester United, I hate that abbreviation, um, would that have been sparked George by Best. George Best? Totally George Best, totally George Best. Again, like... Amazing thing. Belfast's a very um, small city. It's a very divided city or it was in my day. Um, but to actually think that, you know, we're known worldwide for violence and awfulness and ghastliness. Yeah. And, you know, here's a guy who lived in East Belfast 
and uh, on the Craig Estate, and he was world famous. He was up there with Pele and Johan Cruyff and Beckenbauer and yeah, Pushkash, everybody. Know, oh my God! Yeah, yeah. And he was the El Beetle. He was, you know, <laughs> rock and roll. And he was. You talked about 1968, and you know, I don't overly remember the European Cup final. I remember the dancing in the streets with Celtic. I do literally remember. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, in those in those days, um, people had scarves. They didn't have replica shirts or anything like that. You know, to have a shirt with that was Celtic or United, I don't think would be really happened. Will and hat. Well, and hat with a bob on top yeah. of it and a rattle, <laughs> rattles and things. But anyway, um, rewatching uh, the European Cup final of 1968, uh, where basically uh, Benfica tried to kick George off the pitch. I mean, literally kicked, kicked, kicked him. But that lad was an absolute genius. And I know his son, Callum, well now, and uh, I was very, very honoured. I mean, I got a phone call when George died. I got a phone call from his family which said, we don't want a religious ceremony. Would you come and officiate at his funeral? You you kicked off the eulogies, didn't you? I did the whole thing. Or was it the, the entire thing? The entire thing. Bloody hell. Um, at, um, at Stormont um, and Parliament Buildings. I remember watching that on the TV. Rain, I've never seen rain like it. Yeah. Rain was just poured down, poured down. People everywhere. And it was, you know... They, they just didn't want any... They just wanted to play it straight. They didn't want religion. They didn't want anything else. And um, that just was the most... It was surreal. It was yeah. surreal that this guy that you would have watched as a kid and, like, you know, I never met him, obviously, until I was, until I was on TV. And then, actually, one of the things I did was we come full circle. Um, this is your life. So it was presented at the time by Michael Aspel. And uh, I uh, had to do this pretend setup with George that I was doing an interview with him, <laughs> in, in, like in a situation as you and I are at the moment. And uh, then Michael Aspel came in and would say, well, "You think you're here to do an interview? Da, 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 but tonight, George Best, this is your life." And the music goes da 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 da, and and there you were. So. You gotta pinch yourself for those sort of moments, mm -hmm. you know, to be asked to be honoured by that. I know it's, it's huge. I mean, there's there's no greater, no greater thing than the end of somebody's life, their funeral, and for you to be officiating oh. that's best. Thank you, the people that are watching, the people so, that were there. So hard to think he's he's gone, even. But um, you know, such a such a. I would say this about George. I mean, the people will play clips of the Monterey Wogan show, and um, you know, people have what they say about being drunk or whatever uh, my personal experience was he was a quiet nice man he let me down on occasions but he didn't really let me down the drink let him down he was addicted to alcohol and so, so he became a different person when so he no drank. Honest, isn't it? oh it's a terrible terrible grip um i set up a tribute program to him once and um everybody was all lined up to to, to do a well, it was a sort of this is your life on George and, and talk about, um, you know, what a great player he was, sporting greats it was called. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, I said to people, is George here yet? And they said, yeah, yeah, he's in the green room. And 
I said, which green room? And he said, well, only is one green room. He's in the... I said, I poked my head in there. He's not there. And they go, he is there. No George. No George, right? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. And they had babysitted him. They had escorted him. And somebody went to the loo, whatever. And the reason we found out where he was was that we examined the videotapes at the front door and saw George making his way out and uh, off he went and we don't know where he went to after that but that was him gone into the ether mm. so um, and I learned through meeting George I learned the power of saying sorry um, uh, you know in a few weeks months later he came into GMTV with uh, Alex his wife and he was doing something and he came out of the lift and he said Eamon, I just want to say, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry. I said, don't, I said, fuck off, George, don't fucking bother me with fucking saying, too late to say sorry. The amount of people we had to stand down, the cost of that studio, that mm. program was lost. Da, 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 da. I said, I don't, I don't want to hear. And he just looked at me and he said, Eamon, I'm really sorry. And I went, yeah, and, and, and I'm ready to leather into him. And I thought, you you're shouting at George Best. Yeah. What are you what are you talking about? Yeah. Get yourself on. And he just looked, he just said, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. And paused and there was nothing more. And I said, Well yes, well that's well that's that's fine. Yes, that's great. <laughs> that's, that's 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 that. And um it was it was powerful. It was yeah. powerful because he that was fits, he was Jekyll and Hyde. He was a different person when he had alcohol in him. Or needed, or needed yeah. to get alcohol. Because he, he was like a really, <coughs> excuse me, he was a really softly spoken, kind of gentle, yes. as you say, quiet, almost meek. Did mm -hmm. he become, you say, Jekyll and Hyde, so did he become more aggressive with drinking him? Yes, definitely. Uh, bravado, mm. I mean, uh, very strange. But the sad thing is, subsequently everybody learns that um, this alcoholic, thing maybe almost like a gene that has passed down well his, his mum yeah, yeah she was yeah. she had the alcohol gene which is a yeah. shame i read about that in his book could he saying that noticing the change in her and I, I think it's the the subtle and and i don't mean that i know the connotations of this word are very very negative i don't mean it in that sense but he said she was very sneaky in the way where she'd go away and yeah he's like she's gone for two minutes but she's had a large vodka and, yeah. and you haven't realised, and, and they would do anything. They would lie. They yeah, would steal. Yeah. They would do anything to get to get the drink. And uh, it's a shame. And, and 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 it's terrible. What I learned was you can't really be judgmental about that either, because you haven't got. If you haven't got that gene, you don't know how you would behave. And we all have. Maybe maybe with me, it's chocolate bars. I'm I don't the know. Same. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, we all have something that yeah. uh, maybe we're addicted to. Or we have a vice to. But um, mm. yeah, yeah, but. A tremendous privilege, but you know, genius, genius. George, just genius. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of geniuses as well, I have to mention again Alec Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Um how how close are you still sort of close pals? Well, because to me, the uh, the reason I asked that right is because Christmas Eve two thousand and four. Do you remember what you did then? When you were both on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Oh, sure. Well, that was a great thing to Aye. be able to do. I was I was at Old Trafford recently. It depends where I am at Old Trafford, where he is at Old Trafford. He's there. He's there for most games. Yeah. He's a, a, an ambassador for the club. And um, uh, but I was sitting somewhere. I got this tap on the shoulder, and he came up to me, and I I was um, I was quite incapacitated because of uh, I have this problem with my discs and my legs and. Um, so I couldn't really get up or stand up or whatever, but he walked up to me and he grabbed my hand and he went, Mr. Holmes, uh, 
and um, he's he's always very. I tell you what, he's the sort of man that um, I remember one day sitting on a plane with him, and he said to me, um, "You still live?" And he gave me my address. <laughs> I said, "I said, get off. How do you know that? How do you know that?" Photographic I said, memory. I said, Does Lady, Lady Kathy write those? He said, I write them. I write <laughs> those Christmas cards. And um, I said, well, how do you know my address? And, like, he has got a brain for detail. He'll talk to you about Scotland playing Israel, and he played for it and what happened. Yeah. And this was 1957 or something, you know. He he knows. And then he'll, you, you'll talk to him about Aston Villa against Man United, 1983, and he'll, boom, he'll know it. Tell you, you know, the starting 11 and what the formation was. Yeah. I've, and at a much, much smaller, more reduced scale, I'm quite similar. I annoy people with detail because someone says something, I'll be like, that was this date, this was happening at the time, this was the thing that it's... Um, no, yeah, I'm, I'm I, less. I'm more big brush strokes, I, I, you know. Well, I'm, I'm small. It annoys mm. people. Um, he's, he's, that's somebody I would I would love to love to meet. He's a uh, king of Scotland for me. Him and Billy Connolly. Um, by the way, so many more topics, so many more questions. But one thing I've learned is always leave people wanting more. <laughs> so well, I don't know what more of me they'll want. No, but, I'm uh, sure. I'm absolutely sure they will. Uh, I suppose. <clears throat> first of all, thanks very much for coming. I appreciate you giving me a your time not it, at all and, and, and I wish you all the best in uh, your burgeoning career and how things are taking off and uh, you know dreams all I would say to you is I mean I don't know what your dream is and also our business changes so much it's not I like know. it's not like I couldn't you know I could give you advice in the 80s I could give you advice in the 90s and the noughties right now I just who knows where mm. broadcast is going who knows if there's a future for terrestrial TV at all Um who knows what way things will go I know that I am lucky enough that I have seen the best of it that I believe I've, I've seen the best of it not that that stops me from wanting to be in a TV studio or doing things it doesn't there's always ideas there's mm. always things you want to do there's always a pride in and realizing that it beats working for a living no matter how tough it is and social media has changed and made it an angry awful place that everybody can judge you and and whatever and the press judge you and but I do honestly think it's not laying carpets like my dad did and I feel very blessed to be able to have done it and continue to do it yeah I would I would echo that sentiment it beats working for a living mm -hmm. so let's keep rolling with the punches well I'll tell you what I'll sign off with saying this I've grown up watching you I've got to work with you for the last six months. Got to have a laugh with you, and I've now got to sit and have this conversation, and it's been a pleasure at every turn. So, Eamon Holmes, Thanks, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. God bless. Thank you. And thank you for listening, as always, and we'll be back with another episode of Blethered soon. Cheers. <laughs>